Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Today's our last show of 2006. We'll be back on January 8th. Just to preview some of the guests and topics we've got scheduled for the new year. We've got Mike Munger on price gouging, Bruce Yandel on the politics of strange bedfellows and the tobacco settlement, John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, talking about mutual funds and capitalism, and Robert Lucas on growth. You can subscribe to EconTalk at iTunes and elsewhere, and you can visit our homepage, econtalk.org, to find readings related to our podcasts and a full archive of earlier shows. Please keep in touch over the holiday break with your comments and suggestions. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. My guest today is Pete Betke, my colleague here at George Mason, and one of the foremost Austrian economists in the country with a wide-ranging set of interests and research on philosophy and economics. Our topic for today is the economics of crisis, how governments and individuals respond to events like Katrina. Pete, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Uh, Pete, before we get started on the economics of crisis, uh, tell us, what is an Austrian economist? I think some of our listeners know what that is, but I think some of them probably have an impression that it's somebody from Austria, which, of course, it can be, but it's more than that. Yeah, the the Austrian School of Economics uh, was founded in the late 19th century. Um, it um, was given its name by its enemies, its intellectual enemies, as happens a lot with uh, schools of thought. Um, and it came to the English-speaking wor- world in the 1930s and then in the 1940s, uh, first in the United Kingdom uh, through the influence of Lionel Robbins and then bringing F.A. Hayek to the London School of Economics. And then uh, Ludwig von Mises uh, came uh, to the United States in 1940 and uh, started teaching at NYU in the mid-1940s. And his students, Fritz Machlup and uh, Gottfried Hobbler and Oskar Morgenstern had already moved. Uh, when Hitler came to power, you know, the Austrian school dispersed uh, throughout. Is, and, that, uh, is that because many of them were Jewish, or was it just... Uh, I, I believe that, uh, I, I mean, I don't know the exact counting here, but uh, they were Jewish, and then also intellectual life had just shut down uh, in Austria. And so they had uh, been displaced, and they came here, and what united that school of thought in Vienna was a series of ideas and when it came to the English-speaking world, it got identified very strongly with certain individuals. But it's best to always think of the Austrian school in terms of its set of ideas. And the most important of those ideas is the focus on methodological individualism. Uh, what, Mark, what does that mean? Uh, the idea that um, uh, you know, while there may be collective entities that are out there, what most what was most important is explaining those collective entities in terms of the purposes and plans of individuals who make them up. And so it's, it's not meaningful to say society wants Society something. chooses or yeah. anything like that. It's individuals choose. This is very much in line with just standard economics. I mean, mo- most economists are methodological individualists in that sense. And then, uh, But the big unique characteristic is a focus on market process, the idea that um, there are uh, at any point in time – there are inefficiencies that individuals are always alert to act on and try to arbitrage away, and that that set of activities that generate how markets work is what the Austrians have tended to focus on rather than what the world would look like after the market had already come up with the solution. 
So when you talk about inefficiencies, you're talking about profit opportunities, new ideas, uh, things that people might want but don't have yet, yeah. opportunities for improving life that that yield profit and, and reward to yeah. creative people. The great economist uh, Frank Knight used to say that to say a situation is hopeless is to say it's ideal. If you think about that for a second, <laughs> he's right. The Austrians have denied both of those ideas. It's never hopeless, and it's never perfectly ideal. It's always somewhere in between in which individuals are called upon, creative individuals, as you were saying, to act on their interests, to bargain away conflicts a la Coase. Those are Coasean bargains away conflicts. Uh, or uh, to come up with new innovations, better mousetraps, lower cost ways to produce what currently is is doing. So the focus of the Austrians has always been on the entrepreneur uh, who all they mean by that is the individual who's acting creatively in the market to realize the gains from trade or the gains from trade that are due to innovation. When I think about it, I don't know if this is a, a fair or accurate representation. Let me know. I think of it as, a, especially in contrast with mainstream economics as it's practiced in the world today, that the Austrians – the Austrian approach is more like biology and less like physics. The physics approach, which uh, is the sort of standard way economists look at the world, is you know the world, the economy is a machine. You can describe it with a set of equations. Where the Austrian approach is more likely to look at the economy and the world as an ecosystem, an organic entity that can't be modeled neatly by a set of mathematical relationships. It's um, it's more complex than that, and and order emerges fitfully here and there rather than in some global top-down way. Is that is that a fair yeah, summary? Yeah, that's, that's a very good summary. And I would just add, as, as Hayek pointed out, it, it was never really the case that Austrian economics is anti-mathematics. It was anti the certain type of mathematics mm -hmm. that was imported into economics, which was more the mathematics from physics and of steady states rather than the idea of the evolving order. And so uh, Hayek... Uh, you know, was involved with uh, the founding of general systems theory and a lot of different things. He was seeking throughout his career to try to find the right kind of uh, representation for complex systems. And um, Mises, uh, you know, shared Hayek's position on that, but he was more inclined to a strict idea that the human sciences um, are different from the natural sciences and distinct. And so therefore the methodology should be appropriate for the human sciences. And so in that regard, Mises was very much geared towards the idea that the purpose of theory was to help us do history and history is a narrative discipline. And so the way he went about doing economics was also consistent with helping produce narrative results. And so I think that it's important to understand those methodological and method positions within the Austrian school, because they're not against uh, rigor. What they're against is formalism that doesn't aid us in intellectual rigor. And I think that sometimes gets confused when people think about the doctrines. Yeah, I think economists uh, eager to look scientific often impose what looks rigorous, but often yeah. can be sterile and not as, as helpful as these, as these other approaches. Recently, I've made... Uh, um, I've started thinking about a distinction between what I'll call mainline and mainstream economics. Mm -hmm. And the mainline of economics finds its home in Adam Smith and John Baptiste Say, and, and it derives all the way up from David Hume and, and whatnot, all the classical economists up into the, you know, through the 19th century and then into the 20th century who focused on issues of self-regulation, how the, the economic system can self-correct, 
um, that you can get a harmony of interest, you know, those kind of doctrines versus the economists who oppose that position. And if you think in the history of economics, there's always been economists who didn't see the market as a self-regulating system, who saw, for example, Malthusian traps. So you have a Smithian, you know, virtuous circle and you have a Malthusian trap. It's Malthus who's the outlier here. Smith is the dominant line. And in that regard, the Austrians are no different from that main line of economics. However, mainstream connotes uh, sort of what's fad and fashionable at any point in time. So at one time, Keynesianism was mainstream, but it certainly wasn't mainline. It, wouldn't, it didn't believe in the self-correcting properties of the market. And so I think as long as we make that distinction, you can start to see that the Austrians are part of a long tradition that emphasized the creativity of individuals, the self-organizing uh, power of market environment, uh, the higgling in the market and, and, and bargaining and whatnot, versus the idea of that markets will lead us astray, lead to monopoly, lead to all kinds of market failures and, and whatnot. Well, I, I think one of the challenges we have in, in what you're calling mainstream economics is, and also in the classroom, is we tend to focus on techniques and and um, topics that are easily delineated for exams and uh, dramatic <coughs> dramatic mathematical results, uh, sometimes, again, without the insight that we'd hope that that would produce. I, the, the current state of, of economics is very much focused on mathematical rigor, and um, the approach you're talking about, focusing on the self-regulating side of the economy, a lot of people dismiss that. They, oh, we've already figured that out, or yeah, we understand that the, the exceptions are the interesting case. But I would argue, and I know you would also, that it's very subtle and, and complex, this understanding of a self-regulating mechanism. Uh, the insights of Smith and before him, Adam Ferguson, who we've talked about on the show uh, in the past, and Hayek and Mises, those insights, they're harder to represent mathematically. They're harder to represent and ask exam questions about them because they don't lend themselves to little multiple choice questions. But I do think they give us deep insights into the world around us. And why don't we turn to the the issue of, that we're going to look at today, which is which is Katrina. And I know you'll bring some of that uh, intellectual artillery to bear on it from the Austrian school. Uh, Katrina was a, in many ways a watershed event for uh, the way people look at, at government and a crisis. So in Katrina, we have a situation where massive destruction – almost the equivalent of a post-war situation. And it, there was a question as to how we would proceed. That, that how we would proceed, you could think about a timeline that starts at time zero, where the flood is at its peak and there are people tragically dying. Uh, we have the short run period right after the flood where people desperately are seeking food and power and water and and uh, the basic necessities. And now this longer run issue of how will New Orleans recover and even people raising the question of, you know, should it recover? There were actually people after the Katrina saying we should just, you know, shut it down. We shouldn't be people living there. It's obviously a bad natural uh, place to live. So talk first about uh, what I know you've been involved with with a set of studies of this, tell us what those studies are and, and what people are looking at uh, here at George Mason with, with you. Well, uh, let me start by uh, pointing out that um, one of the uh, really insightful classical economists, John Stuart Mill, in his book Principles of, of Political Economy, 
uh, has a passage in there about what happens when countries suffer from war, uh, famine, floods, um, you know, earthquakes. And he says it's amazing how speedily they recover uh, from this. And I think this is, a, we take that passage as the starting point of looking at what are the conditions which allow for a speedy recovery from a crisis versus a slow and drawn out recovery. And the main one is the, the idea of the free flow of labor and capital that come flowing into environments and, of crisis. And stuff. And stuff, yeah, <laughs> that allow you to rebuild fast and recover. And as long as, as uh, Mill, Mill's caveat, as long as you don't have a complete depopulation of the area, you know, then, then things will come back. And so the question that we're asking in the, in the Katrina project at the Mercatus Center um, is we're looking at the uh, sort of a three-legged approach. We're looking at the political and legal uh, structures, the social and, and cultural structures, and the economic and financial structures, and how robust they are once they're confronted with a crisis, and whether or not they can um, work together to rebuild a society and bring people's lives back to uh, the level that they, they would like to live at. And um, so we, we should, we've been down there. We've done, we have scholars in the field. Uh, we've made several trips uh, down there, and uh, we're, you know, we're generating all these studies from it. I, sh I should mention that the Mercatus Center is a research center here on the George Mason campus. It has close ties to the economics department, and this is just one example of the kind of field work that, that's being done here with students, which yeah. is really unusual. Uh, we send our students to Africa. We send them to Central America to look at at issues of trade. We send them to Africa to look at issues of development. And of course, uh, we, we're sending them in, in domestically in, in, inside the United States to New Orleans to look well, at the, what's going on there. The three-pronged approach of focusing on the, the, the political and legal structures, the economic and financial and the social culture, come out of the background studies that we did in East and Central Europe. And the idea basically is that a social system of exchange and production is, is an, a, a metaphor would be a three-legged bar stool and that you have these three legs, the social, the political, and economic, and that if each of the three legs is not strong, when you put the weight of a crisis on the system, the bar stool will topple over, right? And so this was trying to explain why the difficulties in the transition over in the 1990s and into the 2000s in East and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. And then what we did was then we started thinking about, well, maybe, maybe that's what's going on in development in general. So that goes to Latin America and Africa and the Philippines. And, and, and then uh, we wanted to look at this particular case study as a microcosm of those broader ones that we saw in development in general. And so that's why we've been studying the economics of the post-Katrina situation. Um, it's, a, it's a very um, amazing story about the resiliency of civil society uh, and the ineptness of government and uh, also the uh, tremendous role that commercial society can play in rebuilding an environment, the role that uh, Walmart and uh, Home Depot, uh, Home Depot, and, and various big, uh, you know, churches are phenomenal. When um, you know, when you think about uh, September 11th in New York City, the first responders, the heroes of that event, are are quite uh, obvious for us. They're the uh, first responders and the police, the firemen, and whatnot. Um, in New Orleans, that wasn't the real heroes of that that uh, uh, crisis. The real hero of that crisis were the church leaders 
who actually violated what they were told by the officials, by uh, boating clubs, you know, in which they came in with their, uh, 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 you know, sort of little skippers and whatnot and got people out. We know in one of our trips, we went and talked to a youth minister who actually was responsible for getting 100 families out of uh, uh, Center City, uh, New Orleans, um, because he was able to network with other Baptist churches right outside of New Orleans, and they got a van, they violated the rules that told them they couldn't come back into the city, and they would come in, get the people in a van, get them 10 miles out to another person who would then bring them to different churches, and they would go back in and get another family. Illegally. He's illegal. Well, you know, I don't know Not if you illegal. would call violating it violating the, the bureaucratic rules at the yeah. time about what was safe. And these people were real, like, heroes, I mean, because they really, uh, at great risk to themselves, they responded to take care of their parishioners and care about their flock, and you know, in that regard. That's how they would uh, interpret it. And so that's the real vibrancy of civil society. If you look at... Um, uh, you know, East New Orleans with the uh, Vietnamese Catholic community there and how they decided to start rebuilding right away. They got in communities like what you would imagine in a movie about like the way, um, you know, the Amish or whatever do a house raising or whatever. Yeah, and, and witness. Yeah, and witness. witness. Yeah, and, and they would get together and try to do that against all the building code. People would say, no, 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 you can't do that and try to get people's lives back. So we've seen a tremendous uh, vibrancy in civil society, they're recovering uh, and going outside of the bureaucratic system to be able to respond to the needs of the people on the ground. And Emily Chamley Wright is, is heading up that team of researchers that is focused on the civil society aspects. Russell Sobel is focusing on the political and legal structure. So he has talked a lot about the difficulties with FEMA and the problems with the politicalization of allocation of budgets with FEMA, which Russ has a long history of writing uh, papers about and, and uh, that continues in, in this regard. And then Sanford Akita is focusing on the commercial redevelopment that's going on, the role of Walmart and, and Home Depot and other businesses and building back communities and, and having uh, investment in real estate, you know, and these kind of issues. And if you see all three of those going, that's how things are going to take off. But one of the real tragedies when you go down there is how little has actually been done uh, months after. And a lot of that is because of the uh, contradictory signals that are sent by the government officials uh, the inability to understand what the floodplain, the new maps are going to be drawn, um, a lot of, you know, the fact that they didn't relax uh, various occupational licensure. So, you know, uh, and so they didn't, they didn't, you know, go back to mill. They didn't have the free flow of labor and capital coming in. They had a free flow of labor to eliminate uh, uh, debris, push debris back right. off the street. They're good that at that. A, they're good at that, but it's the rebuilding effort that's been the real problem. Well, let, let's let's back up and, and put this in a little bit of a of a structure and perspective, uh, let's think about sort of two phases. The first phase is is let's call it coping. How do you cope with this very serious short run problem of of catastrophe? And the second is the the rebuilding phase. <coughs> if we stick with the coping phase, uh, I think the lasting memory that people will have of Katrina, which of course is one of many many aspects of it, and but this is the one that was in the news is the indifference of President Bush to the crisis and the slow response of FEMA and federal and I'm sure state uh, as well uh, agencies to the to the immediate crisis. How, how did 
other organizations respond? You mentioned Home Depot. I know that Home Depot uh, organized a lot of generators and and I assume supplies of various kinds. And Walmart, I'm told, did that as well. Do we have any other examples of decentralized, because that's going to be one of our themes, this difference between centralized top-down management of this crisis and the decentralized disorganized, Mm -hmm. but perhaps more effective at times and maybe often response of of individual actors such as as these companies. What do we know what happened on the ground in the in the immediate aftermath? Do we know much about that other than these these couple of anecdotes? Well, we a lot of it is anecdotal, but we do have uh, I mean Douglas Brinkley's book, The Great Deluge, uh is an excellent book to start with and there's plenty of blame to go around. It's it's not just the federal government's uh blame, but the mayor and also the governor uh, have uh, their um, you know due role in Louisiana uh, of creating a lot of problems um, there in terms but for of for example didn't the didn't some of the police walk off the job job or do you're talking about New York City yeah the difference in New York City and, and and New Orleans is amazing in the following sense in that in New York I believe it's accurate to say I think there was 200 off duty. Uh, firemen who actually lost their lives in, in, in September 11th because they came in to report the duty to help their brothers in arms or whatever in this crisis. And the building Whereas, collapsed on them. Yeah, and the building collapsed on them. Whereas in New Orleans, we actually had some uh, you know police uh, precincts. No one showed up. <laughs> they yeah. all got out. And, and uh, so it, it, that's why you can't, like when the Saints reopened the Superdome and they had all the first responders come in and they were having the, you know, the police and Honoring, the firemen yeah. and all these guys, I was so upset because in that particular case, they were not the ones who were the, the, the important people. It was your church leaders and local businessmen and, and, and whatnot who sort of have kept things together and tried to help their neighbors out. Um, and there's a lot of self-help kind of idea. And some people just fell in the cracks there. Now, I should point out that without these people, all like computer simulations of a kind of storm and flooding that took place, in that, uh, you know, with the barge uh, uh, breaking the, the uh, levee in the, near the Ninth Ward, you know, a lot of computer simulations have been done. 10,000 people was a projection of who would be killed or lost in a storm of that size. And the fact that there's only 1,600, and I say that not you right. know, flippantly, but 1,600 is a, is, is a miracle of these responders who had to do things on the ground there to get things done rather than so you compare like the way that the youth minister did things in center city new orleans versus the way that the uh, the local governments tried to do things for example uh centralizing where they put all the buses right. so as a result the buses when they got hit got wiped out rather than listening to some of the other individuals who tried to tell them to put the buses in various different strategic places so there was a lot of mistakes uh, human errors that go into that. There's going to be human error all the time in any kind of situation. And the question is whether or not you have other alternatives to go to. And when you centralize things, you eliminate a lot of the alternatives. As, as Hayek always said, it's never about uh, you know planning or no planning. It's about who and whom is going to do the planning. And when you have lots of people doing planning, you're going to have some people making human errors, but you're going to have other people who are right there, Johnny, on the spot to be able to you know fill in. Yeah, I think the other important point there, which I think um, take another Hayekian idea and 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 add something to it. The other Hayekian idea that I think that's important here is the is the question of knowledge. In any situation like this, uh, you have 
And what's often called the fog of war. Yeah. And in a crisis, you have the same kind of fog. It's very hard to get an accurate picture of what's going on. Even in today's world, it's a fascinating thing. I like to um, contrast, uh, you know, warfare in the 19th century with a crisis today. You know, in the 19th century, if you read accounts of the Battle of Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee, who's this genius, right, this mastermind, this phenomenal strategist, uh, greatest, some would say, I mean, one of, the, one of, if not the greatest general of all time, he often had no idea what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> he he did in the in the in the middle of a battle. He he was desperate for information. He wouldn't know where his troops were. He wouldn't know who was alive to to be leading those troops. He had a very uh, uh, noisy picture yeah. of the reality on the ground. Even though he was he was on the ground, he was two miles, five hundred yards from the action at various times. The fog of war, literally, sometimes the smoke of battle, but often just the, the, the span of space that's necessary, he would have trouble um, knowing what's going on and would make strate- numerous strategic errors. And he understood that. I think his genius was partly giving a lot of autonomy to his, to his generals who yeah. had that inf- – to his right. people working under him who had that information, gave them the freedom and creativity to act on their own. And I think the South's – Military failures, partly due to the fact that some of the best guys he had were killed, mm-hmm. and he had people in place, say at Gettysburg, who he couldn't rely on. Well, if you take that sort of metaphor for economic activity of top-down versus bottom-up, uh, in a situation like a crisis of New Orleans and Katrina, you don't know what's going on. You don't know how high the water. You're getting you're getting conflicting reports. If you remember what the reports we got on the outside of what was going on in the Superdome, mm-hmm. uh, the risks that people were under on the street, the amount of looting, the, the risk of violence, the lack of electricity. All that stuff was rumor. Some of it was true. A lot of it was not true, but it was shooting around the the, the Internet and the, and the media in all kinds of complex ways. So when you're the governor or the mayor, you don't have an accurate picture of what's right. going on. So one challenge here is that Knowledge is dispersed. It's an incredibly important insight, I think, of Hayek that knowledge is dispersed. And what you want is a system that pulls that knowledge together in some usable fashion. And to do that, you got to have the incentives. So you talk about you know, who does the planning. A lot of times the people doing the planning, reacting to that crisis in that situation, deciding to put the buses all in one place, which could have been a good idea, just like it's a good idea for FedEx in its early days to put all of its – packages through Memphis, Tennessee, which seems that seems crazy. But but Fred Smith, I think, thought a lot about that. It was a good idea. But in that particular case, in in New Orleans, it probably wasn't a good idea. But there was no incentive, unlike FedEx, for New Orleans, the incentive to understand the risks involved of putting them all in one place wasn't as dramatic. Now, I should say, and I'll let you you react to this, I say there there are incentives. The politicians who made those mistakes paid some price. They didn't pay the price that a that a that a that a CEO or an o- owner of a business would pay if, in such a bad response, but they do pay some price. But but I, what's your reaction to that about about the dispersion of knowledge and and the incentives to use that knowledge and, and how that played out in the in the Katrina story? Well, I, I mean, one, I, I don't think that the political voting booth is as is uh, as strong a disciplinary you know mechanism as the profit and loss mechanism is and and I think New Orleans actually is an example of yeah, that. Uh, I agree. But um 
my our colleague Richard Wagner in his uh, wonderful book to, to promote the general welfare has an example to make this uh, to communicate this to the re- uh, to his readers, which is the difference between Amtrak and Etzel. So he says, you know, Etzel comes out. And what happens when it doesn't, you know, it's a bomb, right? It gets, they reallocate resources very quickly, get that car off the market, you know, and go forward, stop making investments in it. Whereas Amtrak, you know, is, is uh, you know, uh, Dick's argument is, is that Amtrak, if you're the congressman who put forth Amtrak, the last thing you want to admit is, well, Amtrak's not really making money. It's not very viable. Let's, you know, do that. There, the constant demand there, the incentive for the politician is to actually continue to push the failed program rather than to adjust. And so uh, he's just using that as an example in his book to try to talk about feedback mechanisms. Uh, let me give you an example here from Virginia uh, many years ago. I think he, before you moved here, uh, we were hit with a hurricane and uh, electricity was out and even you know water was out. And I went to Home Depot the next day. My cell phone was still working. And I stood in the middle of Home Depot at 6 a.m. in the morning out here in uh, Chantilly and uh, they had not only gallons of water that had been shipped in overnight, this is the day after the hurricane, that they had had shipped in over the night, but they also had all kinds of generators and battery-operated uh, uh, you know, flashlights and stuff, the little lanterns and everything. Mm-hmm. And they had them, not only did they have them there for you, but they had them stacked nice so that you could look at them and in different colors. And I got on my cell phone <laughs> and I called my wife and I said, Rosemary, I said, I love capitalism. I think everyone around me sort of was wondering, <laughs> what's wrong with this guy? And I said, look at this. This is, you know, less than 12 hours after we were hit here and we've lost electricity and lost water. You had all of this stuff within a very short driving distance right there. Now, obviously, New Orleans was hit with a much worse yeah. magnitude of the storm, was much worse. But you saw very similar kind of things very quickly in terms of, of doing this. Uh, Emily uh, Chamley Wright in her um, uh, work called After the Storm, and it's mainly focused on social capital regrouping but what she talks mean? what does that mean social capital well it just means the family networks and neighborhood you know societies and churches and whatnot that get together and so you're you're part of a community and I'm part of a community and and that community gets hit with a shock how do they work together to either rebuild the community or help those in their community you know do better and uh, than others who are say without a community um uh, and uh, one of the things that she points out is how important uh, the commercial response was by things like Rite Aid and uh, Home Depot and Walmart in terms of bringing a sense of normalcy back to the lives of people in these, uh, you know, very afflicted areas. And uh, it's 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 very it's a very good story about the vibrancy of civil society uh, opposite Robert Putnam. You know what we've seen in the after the tsunami and after Katrina is a tremendous outpouring of our civil society in the United States. We still are very vibrant. Yeah, you mentioned Robert Putnam, his book Bowling Alone yeah. claimed that, that we've lost a sense of community. Uh, there's a big um, uh, theme in, in, in some circles that commercialism is anti-community. It's, you know, the, the, the greediness of the profit and loss system destroys community our technology destroys community we're sitting on the internet all day alone and of course i think those gloomy stories ignore the community that technology creates uh, obviously there's enormous sets of community that people are able to find on the internet they're able to find people who 
have diseases <coughs> that they suffer from, who they couldn't imagine were out yeah. there who could help them, uh, information about, about how to cope with those things, all kinds of clubs and, and shared interests that people have. But I think on the ground, in, in, the, in the flesh, face-to-face, I think those are important. I, I want you to talk about that again. You use the phrase civil society. Explain again what, what you mean by that, because I think that's a very um, – it's an important concept. Well, in my own thinking, I, I view civil society as basically the pattern of voluntary interactions between individuals that are for-profit and non-profit. So I don't see the market in being contrast to civil society, but instead actually a very – a uh, vibrant part of civil society, whereas the contrast with civil society is our social interactions, which are based on coercion, on some vo- uh, notion of threat. So either that threat is through physical coercion or through um, you know restriction in our choice set uh, with regard to taxation or other kinds regulations, of things like regulations, these things. So we, so what I like to do is I like to see the old dichotomy between civil society and the state and then examine what is the organization of civil society and how that comes about. And this goes back to, as you said, you know, Ferguson and Hume and Smith, the idea of how this can be self-organizing and, uh, and generate a harmony of interest among individuals. Obviously, you know, Putnam uh, was very concerned with the idea that you could also have um, versions of civil society which are not our dark side of civil society, and we have to admit that. I mean, uh, Al Qaeda is a form of civil society, and, and not for it's a voluntary. You know, yeah. it's an informal, voluntary web of interactions. Yeah. Um, but I do, you know, I, I do think that in a society in which the framework. Uh, for sake of argument now, let's assume that the framework is given of what Hume referred to as a society of property, contract, and consent, uh, that within that, the civil society is extremely uh, robust against any kind of uh, deviations against an ideal world, and it also is uh, you know, constantly evolving. This goes back to why your biological metaphor, I think, is more appropriate, uh, because the market is itself always evolving. Um, you know, when our when our uh, parents were deciding to go to college, it was a lot different the way they thought about uh, writing term papers than when our kids go off to college now in terms of the tech, technology they use to do that, uh, let alone when you and I went to college. I mean, we still had typewriters rather than, than word well, we, processors. We had typewriters and we had punch cards, something yes. <laughs> that many of our listeners will not know anything yeah. about, but uh, the older listeners among us will know that was that to get a computer to work, you actually had to use these physical cards that you fed through a reader to yeah. get it to make a calculations. Every computer that I have bought has been less expensive and more powerful and faster than the one I bought before it. Yeah. So when I my very first computer that I bought in real dollar terms would be you know well over five thousand dollars today. And, and it did a, uh, fraction, did a fraction of what your current computer right. did. Right, and so it's amazing what's happened with technology and whatnot, and that's because of the constant evolving uh, nature of, of the market. And I think that uh, that's also true of the way that we interact. This is, goes back, this is what Putnam's missing about civil society, is that the way that we have interacted has changed drastically yeah, in terms of the communities. We can talk to people in ways that we never used to be able to talk to them, we can have scholarly communities now where we're interacting with people from all over the world where, you know, 30, 25 years ago, it would be a rare occasion for collaboration to take place that far apart. And we've got – we're doing this right now. I mean, yeah. right now, you and I are having a conversation. Using technology, we're going to put it up on the web, and 
you, the listener, from nearby Virginia or far away France or China are listening in and are part of this community of economic understanding that I, I mean, I just find it exhilarating that a normal person today can, can listen to this kind of conversation we're having without having to go to graduate school. Yeah, you know, t- 15 years ago, 10 years ago, if you wanted to get what, what I think of as the deepest economic understanding, the economic intuition of the economic way of thinking, you had to go to graduate school. You had to sit in classes. Then you had to hang out in the coffee room. You had to listen to your professors talking. You had to go to the workshops. That's still a great thing. I'm all right. for it. Um, but today you can get the flavor of that through the internet on on a, the, in the blogosphere and on podcasts that really is this uh, nuanced understanding of, of the world that just the only way to get it before was outside of graduate school was books. And books are very – one way to get that, and and not a particularly effective way, in in, in many ways, uh, for for many people. But I want I want this is a fascinating I, sideline. But I want to go back to civil society because yeah. I think there's a deeper point that we, that we need to make here. Bostat makes it, I think, at the end of uh, the law. Correct me if I'm wrong, but people have a way of thinking about this that is um, uh, very narrow. They they sort of have in their mind that if if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. If we don't have a top-down coerced solution, if someone doesn't intentionally organize this repair uh, of the city or this coping with this crisis, well, then obviously you're stuck with with the with the natural result. Forgetting the fact that the incentives are still in place, as Mill understood, in a world without FEMA. <laughs> when yeah. Mill wrote that paragraph you referenced earlier, there was no FEMA. Uh, and I think a lot of people say, well, if there's no FEMA, there's no help. Yeah. Forgetting the fact that the natural incentives are in place are going to push toward help. The question always is, is how well is that going to do? Obviously, it's great to have an intentionally top-down solution if it works. <laughs> it doesn't work perfectly either. Neither work perfectly. So there are some problems that are best solved voluntarily, and there are others that are best solved coercively. But in our world, our view a lot of the problems that people assume have to be solved coercively would be solved much better by civil society. And just that it takes some obvious examples. People say, well, you're against the food stamp program or the or the the school lunch program. You want to see kids go hungry. Of course not. That's not what we're in favor of. We're in favor of letting voluntary, non-coercive solutions to those things come about. So talk about that. Well, I mean, I think the first thing that you said, which is extremely important, is it's a refrain from Thomas Sowell. Utopia is not an option. So we're always choosing between imperfect alternatives. The question is, which are the ones which actually generate better results rather than just intentions? So the reason why we always tend to go towards centralization is because then we can at least identify intentions. Or we think we can. We we think we can. And then we can say, oh, well, you know, at least we're intending to do good rather than the idea. And and if you think about the criticism of the government in the wake of uh, Katrina, it was personalized in that regard, right? It wasn't that anyone sort of said... Oh, well, you know, it's just a really difficult task and there was confusion in the signals and federalism kind of got in the way because people didn't sure you know, who was right, responsible, who was yeah. responsible and everything like that. They said, ah, oh, he intends to do bad and therefore, you know, that's it because He's bad happens. So they, yeah. yeah, they infer intentions from outcomes. It's a standard sort of way that you uh, do these things. Um, and, and I think that, that part of economics is to resist that part of the lesson of economics. Uh, of the economic way of thinking. Um, in regard to what you were talking about in terms of uh, 
this point about decentralization and centralization. I think that that uh, the author Michael Polanyi, whose Liberty Fund book, The Logic of Liberty, he has a wonderful discussion in there uh, in the essay on the span of central control, in which, as as you might know, uh, he uses examples of the scientific community, the market economy, and, and you know, as examples of spontaneous order of civil society operating versus state-run things, like what happens when science is taken over by the state versus when science is allowed to operate. And the metaphor that he uses is very similar to the one you used about Lee, except he doesn't use war. He uses uh, a team of chess players playing against another team of chess players. And he says, imagine if you had one guy who just stood here and said, everyone move their pawns two you know, points forward. You know, now do this with your rook or whatever. You know? And he says, that makes no sense, right? Cause chess what do you mean? Is, I'm confused. Chess is only played within the context of a game of chess. So my game of chess that I'm playing against Russ Roberts would only be a chess move would only make sense within the context of our right. game. You couldn't have like, a rule about I couldn't how have to a general pattern. rule, right. but that's what bureaucratic uh, procedures would oh, have to force us to do. And that's what you're talking about with the difference in, in battles. Like in battles, the generals who actually find themselves not like, I'm going to stand way back here and move forward. It was the ones who allowed the field generals to actually have more discretionary control to make adjustments on the margin because – there's always going to be things. We live in an imperfect world. In a and, dynamic world. Yeah. In a dynamic world. And, and so you're going to have to make adjustments always on the margin. So like I, I give some talks every once in a while to businesses and stuff. And I now I use the phrase about firms. I say what you want to do is create an environment of creativity within discipline. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to just have creativity flying all over the place. So you want to have a discipline, but you have to have creativity within that discipline so that individuals can take advantage of the unique opportunities that they're confronted with. And I don't see how it is that bureaucratic systems enable us to be able to do that. Bureaucratic Top-down systems are necessarily bureaucratic because it's the bureaucratic rules that provide the order to the top-downness, whereas when you're responding on the ground and decentralized, it's the entrepreneurial move. So really the choice is between a behemoth you know, entrepreneur, uh, a behemoth bureaucracy or a nimble entrepreneur, and you're sort of figuring out which system actually can respond better. And in times of crisis, a lot of times we get confused and say, well, we have to rely on the behemoth bureaucracy because we want to avoid duplication and delay. We want to coordinate all the plans. We don't want to waste anything. But actually, in the process of that, you end up by not being able to respond to all the various different changes that occur right at the time because the bureaucracy is too slow. It's too difficult for it to shift. It's too big. Uh, and uh, it doesn't have this knowledge. It doesn't have this contextual knowledge. It would be like me being the leader of a team of chess players and telling them to, you know, make a move based on some book that I'm reading that has nothing to do without with the looking, actual game. Without that looking playing. at the board, yeah. Yeah. So – Let's then talk about it practically. Um, you know, there's this, this famous story uh, which which I which I love of where Grover Cleveland, when he was president, uh, vetoed a bill to help farmers with uh, I think it was seed purchases after uh, some kind of calamity. If uh, their seed stock was wiped out, maybe by a flood or famine ruined the seed, and so Congress passed a bill that. That said, uh, let's let's get made. I think they were in Texas or somewhere. And Grover Cleveland said, you know, it's a lovely idea. He said, but I don't see anywhere in the Constitution where that's the role of the federal government. And 
a lot of people end the quote there and say, yeah, see, this is how our our constitutional structure stops us from doing good. Right. We should just ignore it. If right. you can help the farmers, help the farmers. But Cleveland went on to say something, I think, much deeper, which was, he said then said, one, it's not constitutional, but he said he said the deeper point, which was, and if we step in and do this, then the other actions that would be set in motion are not going to take place. So the question is, what if FEMA hadn't existed? What if we had said after uh, at some point, or what if we decided to say now, you know, this this cent- your point, this centralized response is it's uh, it's a behemoth, it's unnimble. It's uh, one size fits all. It can't coordinate the information at the speed uh, it needs to. It's forced to have a set of general rules, like those chess, those naive chess players not looking at the board. Why would we ever want an organization like that? And one answer, you know, in other words, it's interesting that we didn't respond. No one responded to. Very few people responded to this crisis by saying. Well, this just shows you that these centralized things don't work. Instead, they say, well, we need to put people in charge who care. We need to have better people running FEMA. And your argument, I assume, is that no, it's intellectually corrupt. It's not – it does not have the incentives or the information or the skills inherently to solve these kind of problems, these kind of uh, challenges. Is that is that accurate? Is that what you'd say? Well, I would argue that the knowledge that's of time and place is is necessary and that this organization simply cannot access that information because it's relying on a different set of incentives. I mean, it's not that FEMA's absent of incentives. It's that the incentives are different from what the incentives of an organization on the ground would be or a set of, of individuals. And some would right? say, well, they have political incentives. So their budget gets allocated in the way that makes political sense. And this is what uh, Russ Sobel has pointed out in his work going back uh, for a decade in which he's been examining where FEMA's uh, budget gets allocated. Um, and uh, and it's, you know, there, it makes very good political sense, but it makes, it makes very little like first responder sense, let's put it that way. Of course, then the next lesson would be, well, some would say, yeah, well, we just need to push the decision-making power closer to the people. We used, instead of having it at the federal level, it ought yeah. to be at the state or local level. The state and local level of Louisiana and New Orleans doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. <laughs> well, the biggest problem with New Orleans that has to be stated, you know, with respect to going back to the mill proposition or uh, – you know, again, on the Liberty Fund website, there's a wonderful essay by Jack Herschleifer, a very insightful economist about the economics of crisis. Yeah, we'll put uh, that up. It's, it's excellent. But uh, the uh, uh, the real problem is, is, is Louisiana was ranked, I think, in the bottom four of uh, environments to do business in before this uh, hit. And New Orleans is, uh, I believe, the worst uh, city to do business in. So you take an environment like that, you shock it. And then you require a commercial response, and commerce doesn't come you know, flooding back because commerce wasn't there to begin with. And then you say, wow, look at that. The market can't do things, when really the problem is is the regulations uh, that exist in the system, which make it very difficult to do business there uh, beyond uh, sort of crony capitalism and, and uh, um, other sort of you know, tourist industries and things like that. But there, there's not a um, uh, kind of a vibrant – way to do business. But at the, at the other hand, we know that if the environment was better, 
New Orleans would be an excellent place to do business. It'd be a gateway to Latin America and, you know, in, in terms of the shipping of goods and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. You have uh, – and so uh, it, there's nothing inherent about the geography sure. uh, or the weather in, in New Orleans that creates it to be a bad economic environment. The bad economic environment is a consequence of bad public policies. And so one of the things that we are learning in this is that the more – the better set of public policies you have, the more resilient your society is going to be in the wake of a crisis. And so your start state does matter. Let's let's move to the uh, rebuilding phase uh, after Katrina, um, after the urgency of, of threatened life was was avoided and as best as it could be done. There was a big debate about now now what should we uh, just some some people actually said I found, I found this just remarkable you know well it's obviously a mistake to build anything there as if again an expert could decide that you think the people who own the land would be the ones who'd have the biggest incentive to figure that out and what that land would be best used for and et cetera. What do you see as the longer term rebuilding process? What's going on now that you know about? What are some of the barriers to rebuilding and and what's happening both in the civil society sense and in the the sense of the state? Well, there's, that's a complicated question because there's a variety of different um, signals being sent. Uh, One of them, let me take on first is, the contradictions that the FEMA economy has generated in the sense that you want people to get back to work, but we've extended, uh, you know, welfare benefits for unemployment, you know, uh, unemployment compensation for a longer period of time. And so people don't go back to work. And then the other sense says, oh, why aren't they coming back to work? It's incentive incompatible. If you get paid to not work, then you're not going to work. And, and the FEMA economy has generated a lot of these kind of, of uh, difficulties. Generated by the political incentives to pay to, off folks and buy their friendship, essentially. Right. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it makes sense politically. See, it's one of the, the classic uh, points in political economy, uh, going back to my mainline versus mainstream. Mainline economics always understood that there was a conflict between good economics and good politics because there's concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. That's not an idea that just was invented with uh, the great work of Gordon Tullock and Jim Buchanan. I mean, you could read that in, in, in Adam Smith about the sophistry of the businessmen and, and the special interest groups that are formed. And also John Baptiste Say had a wonderful understanding of how individuals try to get monopoly privileges. And of course, the greatest satire ever written in economics is by uh, Bastiat on the candlestick makers who wanted the petition against the, you know, uh, unfair competition against the sun, right? Right. And so people have understood this issue of getting involved uh, and the incentives that are associated when political leaders dole out favors, whether under a monarchy or under a, uh, under a democratic system. And that's, you know, so FEMA is responding both to political incentives and to on-the-ground economic crisis incentives. And the politics, unfortunately, tends to win out. But let me, let me go on to some of these other examples. Um, we have seen schools come back uh, uh, that are uh, St. Bernard Parish. The story of uh, Doris uh, Vaudier is, a, is an amazing story about someone who took on a lot of responsibilities that she had, was told not to do. What and happened? she got Well, she knew that in order to build her community back up, she'd have to get the school back up. And so one of the things that she did was she uh, took some of the uh, trailers and whatnot and got them in the parking lot or whatever and and then the building 
the buildings, you know, wiped shot. out, and and so they put them back out there, and they got the school. She opened the school uh, by you know January, and she had she expected to only have fifty students, and she had three hundred students, and then she um, uh, this uh, uh, fall, you know, they opened up and they had uh, um, you know I forget the exact number, but I think seven hundred students or whatever. So people know that if you get the schools going, you get the community going because people have a reason to respond. It's like a focal point, Mm -hmm. you know, and and she knew that and she had to go around the system quite a bit. Why? And and because of the various restrictions having to do with, to give you one example, there was a a trailer that um, couldn't be used for the school because its doors didn't conform to the regulations about, um, you know, for safety regulations. The width of the doors or something, yeah. So she had a bunch of teachers, but they didn't have any laundromat. So she asked the existing person on the ground that was in charge of the trailers whether or not she could turn that into a laundromat for her teachers. And the guy because, said because because it could not be used as a classroom. Couldn't be used as a classroom. So could we at least she's thinking let's right. use it for something. Yeah, and and so they originally agreed to let her go and do that, and um and so then you know she had that done. Then they had a new person switch in on the ground. Going back to our earlier conversation, given a set of bureaucratic rules, which is what they're given. And so the person's like a bean counter and has to go and check off the bureaucratic rules. And they actually were going to bring charges against her for a misuse of funds because rather than using it uh, or or keeping it just to be used for a school, which, by the way, she couldn't use because it didn't meet the dimensions for safety code, she was using it as a laundromat. And they said, that's a misallocation of funds. And she had to do a lot of different stuff to get around the system to get the school up and running. And there's lots of stories like that. Um, The Vietnamese community in East uh, New Orleans, again, is one where they told them, don't do anything, don't get involved, don't rebuild. But yet the priest... Wait till we figure out the plan. Yeah, wait till we figure out where to go. On the other hand, let me me do say something about this, um, the rebuilding effort. Um, we, We can't, as economists, we can't talk about this issue without bringing up the issue of the moral hazard caused by the floodplain issue with the, the insurance. Yeah, explain that. Uh, when you're paid to live at the bottom of a soup bowl, and then the soup bowl fills up, and then we pay you again to live at the bottom of the soup bowl, we really shouldn't be surprised that you want to live there. <laughs> you want to live there, and that it floods on you. You're, you're talking about the fact that, that compassion often leads us, in, in, in a good way, to um, take care of people who are in harm's way, but if you know that every time you're in harm's way, you're going to be taken care of, you're going you're to in, do more dangerous stuff. Yeah, you're more in harm's way. Yeah. And so uh, the floodplain is, is part of that. And if you look at even uh, with this storm, if you look at the areas that we think of when it comes to New Orleans, they didn't get flooded because that's where the development originally took place. And people, be, people were wiser and they actually built above the sea level. Right. So the French Quarter didn't get wiped out in this, you know, uh, and uh, and so, um, you know, it's a question of what you're going to do with the rebuilding. Do we want to rebuild so that uh, the footprint of former New Orleans is rebuilt completely as it was that there's a lot of political pressure to do that. Other experts, as you said, are saying this. Why are we having this battle of experts? A lot of the issue is why don't we have the property owners able to make that decision yeah, you well, just said you just said what should we do? There is no we. Yeah, okay, but, but right? so why can't we get the property owners to be the first? Well, we haven't released the new flood maps, 
so that people know what their insurance is going to be. There hasn't been a determination, you know, so there's a lot of uncertainty, regime uncertainty about what the future is going to hold. And so when there's regime uncertainty, you withdraw back. Your time horizon becomes, you know, shorter. I'm only going to work about this stuff. I'm not going to worry about longer term investments. You're not going to take risks. You're not going to take the risks and all that. And because of that regime uncertainty that's been created by conflicting policy and also policies that are still in the political football area, arena, um, that the actors aren't able to act in a way which would, in their actions, produce signals which other actors could rely on. So when you're talking about the rebuilding, yes, it's completely true that if we had a market signal in this, you would have to pay the appropriate int- uh, you know, insurance rate. If you wanted to live below the floodplain, there would probably be lower cost housing, service sector things would be there, the, the housing structures would be less, um, you know, uh, less of an upfront investment, uh, people would, you know, and things like that. It would be a wholly different sort of footprint of the way the city worked. Um, if you think about very, you know, one of the things that, that was a mistake when people talked about New Orleans was the idea that only the poor were affected because that's actually not true, right? Some of the regions were very wealthy regions that got wiped out. Um, But it is important, I think, to go back and look at the history of why those regions were developed below the floodplain. And a lot of it is because of subsidization that took place in the 1950s and 60s to tell people, you could build here and we'll we'll protect you. But I... So there's not a true market signal. I understand, yeah. and, and I, I want to follow up on that. But let me ask you a side question about the rich-poor distinction you just made. Um, I always uh, find it uh, disturbing when people say, "Well, you know, we need to do this with with the government because then it'll be more fair." If you look, just for example, at police service, uh, police service to poor neighborhoods isn't as good <clears throat> as yeah. police service in rich neighborhoods. <laughs> Public schools in rich neighborhoods are better than public schools in poor neighborhoods, and the political process claims often to try to mitigate those differences, but inevitably, the rich are better at using the political process than the poor. Corporations are better at using the political process than consumers, which is why I'm always in favor of government being less powerful, that there's less of a hammer for people to pick up and use on other folks. But in this case, do we know anything about how rich neighborhoods – got around those regulations more easily and rebuilt compared to poor neighborhoods. Is there any difference right now in whether those rich neighborhoods facing the same regime uncertainty have have somehow gotten around that and made sure that, that their investments were put in place in a way that would keep them secure? Is that, did that, ha- no. did that happen? Do we know no, anything no. about when that? I, when, I, um, when I made a field trip down there six months after the storm, and toured the areas, the uh, devastation in areas like the Ninth Ward uh, was was amazing. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Uh, but it's also the case that it was devastating in these other, uh, you know, areas as well, which was wealthier homes. And the difference is, is that the home ownership in the Ninth Ward um, was actually very high for um, a uh, for a, you know a poor area. Um, but the people, all their assets are in the house. Right. Whereas in the rich neighborhoods, people also had assets independent of the house assets. And so what you saw there in the rebuilding now, this is in uh, February of 2006, uh, 2006, maybe one rebuilding effort each block. 
in which in and, the, in 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 uh, you know sort of the wealthy areas. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they were you know coming back right away. And I asked people about this, and the arguments that I was given at that time by the people on the ground were one: the uncertainty associated with the flood maps. What, you know, explain that. What was well, the issue there? Well, FEMA. And the Army Corps of Engineers produced these flood maps, which determine what the floodplain is. Oh, so and the question you're below, what your insurance and what your insurance be. is yeah. going to be. And so they just didn't know because the configuration has now changed. What are we going to do with rebuilding the levees here, and does that affect you know this and and that? Uh, they just didn't have any uh, feel of that. And so even in the relatively well-off neighborhoods, they didn't know whether or not uh, it was going to be a viable investment for them. And so they were holding off. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the latest, uh, I haven't been down there since February. We've had teams of researchers in, but we've been focusing more on regions like St. Bernard Parish and, and places like that. So I would have to, um, talk to say our colleague, Don Boudreaux, who has family that's down there and see, you know, what, what, what he would say about that. Um, but I, uh, the other reason wasn't so much the floodplain thing, but it was this issue about the rebuilding, the difference between, the ability of, of workers to come from outside of the region to eliminate debris versus contractors coming in from outside of the region to rebuild your home. And at that time, at least, uh, I was informed that there were very severe restrictions in waiting periods for, say, an electrician from Texas to come down to New Orleans to do your electricity in your house that it was a four to six month waiting period for his license to be yeah. approved. So it wasn't just like you or me, you know, saying, hey, we're going to do our own yeah. wiring, yeah. right? And then have the house fry up. It yeah. was actually, because one of the things that I was thinking about is I'm from New Jersey. People from New Jersey are are pretty, you know, blunt about everything. And I was thinking, you know, my brother's a working class guy. He works in construction. And I'm thinking, you know what? I bet you that there's a bunch of guys that want to get together and say, you know, I'm going to go down there and make a killing. Make a lot of money. Make a lot of money. And and that is what happened in Florida and different places like that. We actually have one of our graduate students here used to build houses. And and I uh, asked him, because he, he said he and his brother were thinking about going down there to help, you know, with the construction. And they just thought, man, I'm not going to go down there. It's too much of a of a regulate, regulatory nightmare. So we're going to stay out. Whereas in Florida, you know, they went in and they rebuilt and, and did stuff. So it does, I think, it I does think keep, a really serious study needs to be written on the regulatory regime in that regard. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that. I want to apply it to something I know you know a lot about, which you mentioned earlier, which is the situation in Eastern Europe. You use the phrase regime uncertainty. That's a, a technical phrase in economics. The way I think of it is just uh, uncertainty about the rules of the game. Yeah. You, you, you're not sure what the property rights are. You're not sure what regulations apply to you because of either either they're not formalized or they're under the control of the of leadership. There's corruption often and how those are implemented. Um, when we're talking about this rebuilding, the analogy that came to my mind is Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. And a lot of people said, well, you know, once once you get that communism thing ended – Markets will, will take over, and they're just going to thrive. Right. You have all these great profit opportunities, and, and it didn't happen. It certainly didn't happen in a, at a even pace across the countries that that's, that suffered from communism. They it was very uneven. Some countries thrived, others did not. Others have been stagnant and struggled. And my guess is a lot of that difference and the failure of quote markets to solve the economic problem there was due to the regime uncertainty and the, the sort of three legs of the stool you mentioned yeah. earlier. So talk about it in that context uh, that 
because here we've just been saying, well, you know, people expected, you know, you have this destruction, but people are going to spring into action afterwards. It hasn't happened partly and maybe a lot because of these regulatory barriers. What happened in Eastern Europe? What was the analogy there? It's, it's very analogous. I'll, I'll give you uh, three quick stories. Um, so I'm sitting in a uh, in a uh, bar in uh, Bucharest. And Is that Romania? In Romania. Yeah. And, and a group of people come to me and they're like, okay, so you're so smart. You're an economist. I was over there. What year is this? This is uh, the late 1990s, okay? And uh, so they say, you're so smart. You're an economist, something like that. There's a, uh, a city that's 100 kilometers outside of Bucharest. It's a former steel, steel town, you know, and uh, they have 100% unemployment. How come it hasn't, you know, uh, recovered? If markets are so great, how come we haven't seen this tremendous recovery? So I say, hundred percent unemployment is kind of high. Yeah, it's kind of high. Everyone is unemployed in this town. Allegedly. Right? That's that's at least the claim that they're making. It's a round, might be a rounding yeah. figure. It's like <laughs> right? it's like it's like a communist election. Hundred <laughs> percent. You know, often it was ninety nine point six, but let's call it a hundred. Right. Yeah. So they they say to me. Uh, so I say I I ask back. I said, well, I said when they shut the steel firm down, were they able to allocate? Some of the uh, you know capital from the, the machinery, machinery, machinery yeah. and things like that. And say, oh no, you know foreigners wanted to buy it, but we're not going to allow that because then foreigners would take advantage of us. I said, oh okay. I said, well, how about the workers? Are they uh, able to come to Bucharest? I mean, there seems to be a very vibrant activity here in Bucharest. Oh no, no, no. That just adds to the gypsy problem. We don't want that. We don't. We don't need that in in Bucharest. And I said, well, how do these people survive if they're not working? How are they? Oh, they get, uh, you know, three quarters of their previous wage as a pension. And I said, oh, so what mystery do we have here, right? You didn't allow capital to be reallocated. Labor wasn't allowed to be mobile, right? And you're paying the people not to do anything. So, okay, what's the mystery? So that's my first point. A lot of times in East and Central Europe and the former Soviet Union, when you see these difficult periods, you have really incentive incompatible policies, just really sort of, you know, uh, bad sets of public policies. Second second story is uh, from the next two will come from uh, Russia. If you remember in the 1990s, in 1992, the ruble was exchanged with the dollar at 180 rubles to $1. In 1995, the ruble exchanged at more than 5,000 rubles to $1. During that period of time, from 1992 to 1995, if you read any of the papers, you will read that they were following monetarism. This is an age of high monetarism. This is, you know, we follow this neoliberal idea of monetarism. The, the central banker during that period, Garashenko, wasn't Don Brash, right? Of New Zealand. <laughs> That's a reference to our earlier podcast with Milton Friedman. Yes, the, the Milton Friedman podcast is an amazing discussion about the role of money in society. Russia did not follow this advice. Garashenko's notion of running monetarism was to print the printing press at faster and faster paces so that you actually threatened the hyperinflation. It reminds me of a story about Ludwig von Mises during the hyperinflation in Vienna. In the early 1920s, supposedly, they came to him and they said, you know, Professor Mises, I understand that you're, you know how to shut our inflation down. And he said, meet me here at midnight. And uh, supposedly, they came to his office. He says, follow me. And he took him to the printing press. And he said, turn it off. <laughs> and uh, Not that and, hard, uh, yeah. That's not hard. It's not and, hard practically, politically. <laughs> politically very difficult, hard. yeah. And so that's – so that the second policy is that the, – the second difficulty is that the rhetoric of radical reforms – 
were not met with the reality of what the reforms really were doing, which I think is a large part. So markets get blamed for things that they didn't even, they weren't involved with. So we have incentive incompatible policies. We have rhetoric. And by that, and by that you mean policies that create incentives that conflict so that the outcomes we'd hope would happen have no chance of happening because of the self-interest of the people. Right. And then finally, you have the, the issues of regime uncertainty. And I give another example from Russia. In 1992, I was a guest of the Academy of Sciences in Moscow. So I was there over the winter months at Oleg Bogomolov's Institute. And uh, during that period of time, the finance minister was a man named Boris Fodorov, who was a pretty free market guy. But the vice president was a man named Viktor Chunomoldrin. Um, and uh, Fodorov had introduced price liberalization. So we're going to liberalize all prices. We need to have, you know, this is market the, signals. Market right? signals. We need to have prices. Sounds good. <clears throat> so on Monday, he would make that announcement. On Wednesday, Turner Muldron would come in and say, the age of market romanticism is over. We need labor <laughs> discipline. We need to crack down and all these things. And so if I'm an entrepreneur, how do I view these things? And so there's conflicting ideas. There's a lack of a credible commitment. This creates regime uncertainty. So when you add those three things together, because the Soviet Union or, or Russia had similar things to the Romania case, it, it shouldn't surprise us that during the 1990s, when all the debate was who lost Russia, and we thought it was about liberalization and somehow it's too market, introducing markets too fast, too fast yeah. and all these things like that, What's one of the things that we always remind ourselves about that empirically? Black markets. Whenever we think about Russia during the 1990s, we also think about black markets. Well, as an economist, the economic way of thinking tells us that black markets are a consequence of prohibited markets, right. not of having free markets. Right. So you can't have free markets and black markets at the same time. It's uh, The way I used to say this to my students at NYU was, if they legalized all drug transactions in the in the in the uh, in, in uh, New York City, you wouldn't go through Washington Square Park and have a guy going, you know, yeah, <laughs> here's sure. like this. And same thing with if they outlawed meatloaf. If they outlawed meatloaf because they want to get rid of fat people, you would have a guy sitting in Washington Square Park with, selling meatloaf, yeah, with meatloaf yeah, here, yeah. you know. And so, it, uh, black markets are a consequence of prohibited markets. That that's how they come about. So it's not the case that they move too quickly to markets. And this leads us to a very important point about the difference between, you know, Russia and China during the 1990s, because people have misunderstood that story. Russia had tremendous amounts of de jure change, but very little de facto change in the way they actually operated their system. Whereas in China, it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. While the things are still de jure the same way, the de facto change, the fiscal system has so decentralized in China that you have, you know, through these special economic zones, the, the, the way that they've changed the tax system. They actually have, um, Barry Weingass has written some really important papers on this, on the idea of, of, of a fiscal federalism Chinese style, in which he explains how after Deng Xiaoping, when he said his famous thing about it doesn't matter what color the cat as long as it catches the mouse, hmm. that really what that entailed in, in actual form was a whole bunch of fiscal changes, in which he has a kind of a reverse revenue sharing scheme rather than the central government subsidizing the state enterprises. The state enterprises now could keep 
you know, the surplus, but just kick back like so much back to the state taxes. So, so they, yeah, so they had a, but they, so, so they changed the fiscal incentives. And as a result, you get this great economic growth. Whereas in Russia, they continued to have centralized fiscal system. And then they had the difficulties of tax arrears, which meant that they then tried to, you know, crack down even further and further while they were supposedly liberalizing. And so this is yep. why, you know, we've had such difficulties in in Russia getting a viable market economy as judged by capital inflows and investments. And 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 Putin for a little bit had a kind of a supply side miracle in the late 90s and he had it sort of reversing turning around and uh and you do see capital inflows. But then one of the things that you saw was he found that the the people who became powerful businessmen became political opponents and he used the power of the state to crack down on them. And what you've seen since that time, since the Yukos affair, is actually a difficulty of attracting foreign investment again. What's the Yukos affair? Well, you put the, the guy in jail? The, yeah, the, you put the guy yeah. in jail. And he also started to use the phrase reprivatization uh, because he argued that the privatizations under Yeltsin were ill-got, you know, ill-gotten gains, which in some extent you could argue they right, were, yeah. they were you know, politics as usual. But then he started saying, I'm going to engage in reprivatization. That creates uncertainty. If I'm an investor, right, and I'm one of the people who have now been in one of the firms, and you say you're going to reprivatize, to, that could be interpreted as renationalize sure. as well. And and I think that that explains, you know, Russia. So I think as an economist, you know, it's a little self, shameless self promotion here. You know, my textbook, The Economic Way of Thinking, which I inherited from Paul Hain after his untimely death. Uh, you know, that's really the kind of economics that you need to do for any kind of public policy discussions in Russia or in uh, Latin America or Africa or in New Orleans. It's really sort of basic economics, not rather than complicated economics. There are really complicated questions in economics, and they are really intellectually fascinating. But a lot of public policy is just really basic, low-hanging fruit. But my favorite book on this is actually Richard Epstein's uh, book Free Markets Under Siege, which is an IEA book. And uh, in that book, he, he says, why don't we just focus on the low-hanging fruit, issues like tariffs and uh, you know rent controls, minimum wages. Just think if we got rid of those low-level restrictions that are obvious violations of economic freedom, how much we would improve the lives of people throughout the world. And if we think about that with regard to New Orleans, if we just got rid of some of this low-hanging fruit, and allowed the individuals to sort of rebuild their lives based on the signals that they themselves get from their actions, you would see an amazing outpouring of, of vibrancy in, yeah. that, in that city, and you would see people improving their lives. Um, really there, the, I think the, the biggest lesson of what you're saying is, is that uncertainty. If you don't know whether you own what you own, whether it's in New Orleans or, or Moscow, if you don't know what you can do with what you do own, and you don't know whether you're going to be allowed to keep what you do with what you own, you're not going to be very aggressive in, right. in, in innovating. And the more uncertainty surrounding property rights and what you're allowed to do with your property and what you're allowed to keep from the fruit of those actions, the, the less likely it is that people are going to take risks, that people are going to take action. They're going to take a more of a wait-and-see attitude or worse – and I think this is a, a the negative punchline of this story. Worse, they're going to turn to the makers of the rules to influence them 
and to try to get whatever security they can get for themselves. Right, and advance at the expense of others rather than the civil society, which uh, where people can advance together. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well, my guest today has been Pete Betke. My colleague here at George Mason, professor of economics, will be back on January 8th for a new year of conversation on economics and the world around us. Please visit econtalk.org for more podcasts and readings related to today's discussion. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening.